You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. Amen. All right, so the book of Genesis is where we're at. Um, and we are in chapter 2 this morning. Uh, Billy did a great job of introducing chapter 2, which really I think should be the end of chapter 1, uh, speaking about the seventh day when God rested from all of his work of creating. And then uh, in verse 4 here, we start with uh, kind of a, a, a new train of thought. And uh, so we're actually going to this morning cover Genesis 2, verses 4 through, uh, let's see, where are we stopping again? Uh, 17. So I will read this out loud, and then uh, I know we pray a lot, but we need to, so (laughs) I'm going to uh, pray and ask the Lord for some help here. So this is Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east out of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Let's pray. Lord, we confess again our need for you to teach us. We know that you are our life. You're our most treasured possession. You're everything for us. And your word, Lord, is so vital to us. We know that it gives life. It lifts our souls. It grants us wisdom, wisdom that's from you, not wisdom like the world has that's passing away, that changes from generation to generation, but wisdom that's enduring, that's eternal. Lord, we need that wisdom for life. We need that wisdom to know how we can honor you, how we can worship you and offer ourselves in service to you in the ways that will most glorify you. Help us to understand how you made us, why you made us, and to understand more of you as we learn those things. Holy Spirit, we ask that this morning you would teach us in such a way that it would draw us into deeper fellowship with you, that we would see Christ as ultimately satisfying and the reason for our existence, We know that we just don't have the ability or the strength, the wisdom to do this on our own. So we place ourselves at your mercy, Lord. Please help us. Please let every word be from you. And let us all hear and respond faithfully in obedience and faith. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so... You notice the way this passage starts, these are the generations. 
And this is a theme that you're going to see continuing repeatedly throughout generation, throughout Genesis. These are the generations of this time. These are the generations of this man, or these are the generations of this other man. And the Lord is drawing our attention to a certain family through all of this. That's, that's why Moses, the writer of Genesis, who's being inspired by the Spirit to write these things and give these accounts, it's why he makes these mentions of generations, because the Lord is focusing our attention on a certain family line. Of course, Adam and Eve are family to all of us. Uh, but the second generation of human beings began a divergence in human history. As, as soon as it wasn't just Adam and Eve, you, you see lines beginning to form, branches beginning to form, and we all are connected in different ways to those different branches. And it became God's people and everyone else. These, these branches that were forming, really what was happening and the divergence that was happening in humanity was it became God's children and everyone else. And it's still that way today. That's still the case. There's a lot of ways you can break up humanity. There's a lot of divisions you can make and ways you can distinguish people from each other. But for the Christian person, we see humanity as God's children and everyone else. And this happens in the New Testament. This isn't just a Genesis thing. There were Jews and there were Gentiles, right? But then Paul says in Ephesians, Christ broke down that dividing wall of hostility and created one man out of the two, one kind of person. And now the only thing that distinguishes people from each other is you're either God's child or you're not. There's really only two kinds of people in the world. There's something in the nature of God that really values family really values family. It's, it's why I think Moses here says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. The generations? God creates the heavens and the earth, and Moses says, these are the generations. Isn't that an interesting way of expressing that? This is the family that God is creating. Family so important to the Lord. So much so that those who trust in Christ are called the children of God. Everyone he loves and calls to himself is made part of his family. Now, at this point, I, I know we, we haven't even gotten past the first phrase, but I'm already going to ask you to turn to another scripture. Look at Luke chapter 3. So flip really far, all the way over to the New Testament. The New Testament begins, you'll see Matthew, Mark, and then you'll see the book of Luke. And we're not going to camp out here for a long time. We're not going to belabor genealogies in this sermon. But later on, specifically chapters 4 and 5, we will get deeper into these things. And honestly, they're fascinating. I, I wish we had time to do more of this now. But it's, it's not necessarily warranted by what Moses says there in verse 4. But this is, this is so interesting. I think we have to do it. I want you to see in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 23, a genealogy of Christ is given. And the reason why I'm pointing you to this particular genealogy, there's another one in the book of Matthew, but it doesn't go back quite as far. It goes back to David to show that Jesus was the son of King David, and he's of royal lineage. But here, Luke is trying to accomplish something a little bit different. Now listen to this. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, we know better, of course, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of, now listen to how he just launches into this genealogy, which is hugely important for a Jewish person to establish credibility. Where you come from, what kind of stock you come from, was deeply important and it mattered. So I know most of the time when you're reading Luke, you're like, oh, Christmas, and then all this stuff, and then you get to the genealogy, like, I don't know how to say that. Okay, the temptation of Jesus. But there was no skipping over this for the first century Jewish person. This really mattered. And, and I'm going to point out to you why it matters, but we're going to have fun with the names first. 
the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai. How am I doing? The son of Math, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur. I know it's upsetting. <laughs> when will it end? The son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi. You're starting to hear some names you recognize? The son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melie, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Ah, King David. The son of Jesse, you recognize him. The son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nahashan, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, who was known for his giftedness and administration. <laughs> the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac. We're getting into Genesis here the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, not Pegleg, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Isn't that fascinating? We know exactly where Jesus comes from. The son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. I find that moving. And here's what I find so moving about it. According to Genesis chapter 5, verse 3, it was 130 years after the creation of Adam from dust that Seth was born. And Seth became the father of, who became the father of, who became the father of, until Jesus was born in Bethlehem. 130 years after the creation of everything, we can trace back the genealogy of where things diverged and the, and the bloodline of Jesus was distinguished. Fascinating. But it isn't just fascinating, it's also actually critically important for us to understand this. And here's why. Even just noting that Jesus comes from this line, all right? Seth comes from Seth who came from Adam, who came from God. 130 years after everything was made, Jesus is an undeniably historical, real person. Amen? It's just undeniable. And, and people have tried for generations and generations to try to create some mythology around Jesus in order to kind of delegitimize him as a real person, but you just can't do it. He's an actual historical person. Whether or not you believe he is God is a matter of the heart. But as a historian, you can see him as a real person. Now, if we know Jesus is a real person and his lineage is tied back to people in Genesis, then why are we so tempted to allegorize Genesis and make it all symbolic? I don't know. Is Adam and Eve real people? I don't know. I mean, is that really the point? Yes. If they're not real people, then you don't have a real Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Look at Luke chapter 3. Why does he take such care to trace back to Seth and then to Adam and then to God? Because he wants you to know, no, Jesus is real. 
He's a real person and he comes from real people. And the people in Genesis are every bit as much as real as Jesus is. These are real people. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. We're talking about real historical people and things that actually happened. Moses isn't in any way trying to make this a fable just to teach the Jewish people some lessons. These aren't just characters in a story. They're people. So, Genesis is true. That's point number one of today's sermon. Genesis is true. What it says is trustworthy. And now here we begin this recounting of creation, of the creation of man and woman and the place where they lived. And this isn't the, the only time we're going to get another account. Actually, in chapter 5, in, in the first uh, couple of verses, you're going to get another creation account. It's brief. It's not nearly as detailed. But it's three different times that we're given this account of man and woman being created. In this chapter 2 account, we receive insight into the nature of God and the nature of man. So we're going to learn things about who God is, and we're going to learn things about who we are in our essence, in the way that God created us. Like a modern way of saying is that we're going to learn how we're wired. You know what I mean? Why are we the way that we are? We're going to see that today. Up to this point, I want you to, to see something. Up to this point, even if you go ahead and you can flip back to chapter one, or maybe you don't have to flip, and I want you to see how God is referred to. In the beginning, God. Then verse three, and God said. Verse six, God said. Verse nine, God. 11, God. 14, God. 20, God. 24, God. 26, God. 27, God. 28, God. 29, God. 31, God. Chapter two, verse three, God. Now look at verse 4. In the day that the Lord God. You see what happened there? The Lord God. Now look now past this. Verse 5. The Lord God. Verse 7. The Lord God. Verse 8. The Lord God. You see that? What happened? God, God, God. The Lord God. The Lord God. The Lord God. It's important to understand why this says this. Up until uh, the beginning of chapter 2, when the scriptures are referring to God, Moses is using the word, the, the name for God, Elohim, which is not a personal thing. It's more of a title. It it's, comes from El, Elohim. It's to demonstrate his power, his sovereignty, his, his, his creative power, that he is God, he is other, he's eternal. But it doesn't necessarily communicate anything personal about him. And then here, we have the Lord God. And this is where the scriptures begin to refer to God as Yahweh. Yahweh, the Lord God. This is a personal name. This is the name that God taught to Moses. And it's, it's built on the Hebrew words for I am. You remember, he told Moses that. Who shall I say sent me? Tell them that I am has sent you. He's Yahweh. And this is, to me, just, it just demonstrates God's glorious otherness. There's a ministry called Desiring God, really helpful. If you don't know of it, they just have all kinds of helpful resources. And here was, there was an article written about the name Yahweh, or I am, and here's how they said, Yahweh teaches us. There's 10 things that we can learn about God for the fact that he calls himself Yahweh, I am. At least 10 things. Number one, he never had a beginning. It says, as every child asked, who made God? Every wise parent says, nobody made God. God just is. He always was. He has no beginning. God has no beginning. The second thing, God will never end. If he didn't come into being, he cannot go out of being because he just is 
being. Number three, <coughs> God is absolute reality. There's no, no reality before him. There's no reality outside of him unless he wills it and makes it. He is all that eternally was. No space, no universe, no emptiness, only God. Number four, God is utterly independent. He depends on nothing to bring him into being or support him or counsel him or make him what he is. Number five, everything that is not God depends totally on God. The entire universe is utterly secondary. It came into being by God and stays in being moment by moment on God's decision to keep it in being. Number six, all the universe is by comparison to God, nothing. Contingent, dependent reality is to absolute, independent reality as a shadow to substance, as an echo to a thunderclap. All that we are amazed by in the world and in the galaxies is compared to God, nothing. Number seven, <coughs> God is constant. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He cannot be improved. He is not becoming anything. He is who he is. Number eight, God is the absolute standard of truth and goodness and beauty. And beauty. There's no law book to which he looks to know what is right. No almanac to establish the facts. No guild to determine what's excellent or beautiful. He himself is the standard of what is right, what is true, and what is beautiful. Number nine, God does whatever he pleases and it is always right and always beautiful and always in accordance with truth. In all reality that is outside of him, he created and designed and governs as the absolute reality. So he is utterly free from any constraints that don't originate from the counsel of his own will. Number 10. <coughs> God is the most important and the most valuable reality and person in the universe. He is more worthy of interest and attention and admiration and enjoyment than all other realities, including the entire universe. Yahweh. Why does Moses begin to call him Yahweh, independent, glorious, beyond, unneeding? I, I don't think it's that he suddenly remembered that God is Yahweh. I think it's because he's about to start communicating God's relationship to mankind. And in God's relationship with mankind, it's important that we remember God does not need us. He's above us. He's beyond us. But in his graciousness, he draws close to us. He even gives himself a name that we can understand. Call me this, the Lord God, Yahweh. So here we have God eternal, now about to create man. It says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. Makes sense. And a mist was going up from the land, which mist there, if you, you, you may have in your Bible, just as a kind of a technical note, you may have there, there's a note next to mist, maybe a, a reference at the bottom of the page and it probably says something like a spring. That's actually the better interpretation a mist coming up from the ground. You kind of imagine this creepy place, you know, it's like always dim. <sighs> it's more of a spring. There was a spring coming up, there were rivers, and the ground was just filled with fresh water that was bubbling up and watering the earth according to God's design, watering the trees. A mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And verse 7 happens. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and looked at the result of what God did and the man became a living creature. It is so 
humbling to imagine our beginnings. So humbling to know where we come from. We forget it too easily. God, the Lord God, is eternal. He's spirit. He's independent. He has no need. Glorious, benevolent mystery of power and gentleness and sovereignty and untethered authority. And man is, and man is dirt. (laughs) We're dirt. We started from dirt. So different from God. So in need of God. So attached to God in our existence. But God stands alone from us. He exists with or without us. But without God, we cease to exist. It's his breath in our lungs. Man is dirt. If that doesn't put you in your place, then I think you have a weird, exalted obsession with dirt. <laughs> you know, it's just dirt. There's the, the Hebrew for dirt here is dirt. <laughs> dirt. Oh. He's not trying to say anything really fantastic about human beings here. There was no special dirt. He took him into the valley of Siloam. No, it's just whatever dirt was around. He just got some dirt and he made a man. His dirt. We need God. He made us. We find our beginnings in the dust of the ground. But then something distinguishes us from every other creation. Everything else that the Lord God made says he, he made these animals and they came into being and they recreated after their own kind and all these things. But this is the only time that the scriptures say that the Lord God breathed into one of his creations. This is why we're different. We have God's life in us. We're made different from the rest of creation. And, and we'll see as we continue to go the, the reasons that God made us the way we are and the, and the work that he gave us to do and all those things, but it stands independently as a really incredible truth that God distinguished us from every other thing he created. How can this massive, vast, seemingly unending universe have just this one little mud ball with some people on it that God really cares about? Because they're the only things God breathed himself into. That's why, that's why there can be this vast universe that we can't find the end of. And it seems ludicrous almost to think that we're alone in it. That we're the only creatures like us, according to God. He didn't breathe himself into anything else. The intimacy of that moment when he leaned over Adam and just, a wind blew from God's self into a body. And that body became a living creature filled with consciousness, filled with desire, filled with capacities that only God has. Capacities to feel, to love, to grow, to change be different from everything else. Verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. Now the garden was not Eden, and Eden is not the garden. There's a garden in Eden. Eden is in the east. And, and this word garden, actually, it's interesting, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but the ancient Greek translation of it actually translates that word garden as paradise. It was a paradise created by God in Eden, which interestingly enough, if you kind of look at where these rivers are and you are thinking about the East, uh, if you want to be like super spiritual and holy on your next vacation to some paradise, you're going to have to go either somewhere in Eastern Turkey or Southern Iraq. 
I know, that doesn't sound like the most beautiful paradise vacation destination, but if you just want to take like a super biblical vacation. He plants this garden. Notice that the Lord, Yahweh, doesn't need a paradise. He doesn't need it. He wanted to make it. He is a paradise. He is himself all enjoyable, all satisfying, all beautiful. He made this for mankind because he wanted to. Why is that significant? Because he loved Adam and Eve. He loved them. He made them a beautiful place, lush, delicious, a beautiful place to live. Now notice that Moses specifically mentions that there was no bush of the field or small plant. Why does he take time to mention that? It seems almost insignificant, doesn't it? So then we know this about this garden at least and and the rest of the earth, that there was mostly just large trees and things like this, fruit trees and beautiful majestic trees, but there wasn't this kind of stuff just popping up out of the earth. He hadn't made it rain yet. The 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 water was coming from springs. And so there wasn't just these kind of wild things popping up all over the ground yet. But look at the, the reason for why Moses says there was no small bush or plant growing on the ground yet. The man had not yet been created. Man had not yet been created. There was no man to work the ground. These little, these small growing things, bushes and small plants, what it's referring to here is like things that need tending to, things that need care in order to grow. They need to be pruned. They need to be worked. This is a garden after all. But God didn't put those things there yet because he hadn't put the man there yet. And again, we find purpose in that. We find something about our nature in that. God didn't put things there until we were there because those things were there for us. They were there for us. Things that required our attention. God made the earth with mankind in mind. So after he created Adam, different things began to grow that required Adam's attention. And now look at verse 15. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to what? Work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. God gave Adam a job, a job to do. And we're going to see as we continue to go through chapter three, uh, through chapter two later on and through chapter three, that, that God is commanding mankind to work, to rule over the earth, to have dominion over it, to fill it, to to actually be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth. This earth was made for you to inhabit and you to care for. Which is interesting because there's a lot of opinions out there that the earth would be better off without us on it, right? Yet according to God, if we're not here, it loses its form. It grows in a way that God didn't mean for it to grow. It was supposed to be tended to, cared for, ruled over by us. We're supposed to be here and take responsibility for doing this. But there's something, I think, deeper happening in the purpose for which God created mankind. What we're here for. God did not put us in a paradise And just say, hey, look, enjoy. Just enjoy. Just relax. Kick back. I've done everything for you. I've made all this stuff grow, and it's going to keep on growing. Just relax. Just eat. Just get fat. Really glorified fat, like pre-fall fat. You ever experienced a meal where you're like, this feels like pre-fall fat? Butter. Butter. 
We are designed to work. To work. We're created to work. Now, Paul says something in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 about this. And I want to read it to you. And, and remember now, we're talking Genesis 2. We're talking about God creating the earth and creating a garden and putting the man in the garden and telling him, work, tend to it, care for it, build it up. But in Paul's day, he's not talking about tending gardens. He's talking about advancing the kingdom and building each other up, tending to each other doing ministry that glorifies the Lord. Now, this is what he says. Now, we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, that is his right as an apostle to receive gifts from the church, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Just occupying yourself with idle tasks, but not actually working productively and creatively. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Idle people who despise hard work should be warned. They should be warned. We were created to work. And now what is our work? What is our work? Well, there's all kinds of work to do. There's work that we're in this world to do because we just have to work in order to eat, right? We don't want to be idleness. We don't want to just hope to always receive without giving of ourselves at all. We were wired this way. And that's why the most miserable, conflicted man you'll find in the earth is a lazy man. Because he's lost his identity. He's trying to make his way in this world without being the person God's created him to be. A worker, a tender, a builder, a constructor. And there's all kinds of constructing, building, tending, caring that can happen. It can be artistic, coming from the right side of your brain, or it can be real analytical, coming from the left side. Maybe you're good with your hands. Maybe you're good with your mind. Maybe both, I, whatever it is. But to be hardworking at something God has given you to do so that you can eat is something that's wired into you from Genesis 2. God made you from the dirt, put you in a place and said, get busy. Get busy for my glory. I made you for this. But now there's a different kind of work. That, that's the work that we all have to do because we live on this planet, because we are mankind. But there's a different kind of work that as children of God invited into this relationship, this family of his by the blood of Christ, there's a different kind of work that we have the work of the gospel. This is getting to a level of utmost importance. Every man has to work so that he could eat. But if we are not about the work of the gospel, what are we doing? If we were created just as, as inhabitants of this planet to work, and then we excel in our identity because our identity is in Christ, not as just created human beings, but now children of God, ministers of God, then surely our work is more than just make a living. 
It's make God known in the earth. Make him known. And surely if we're to work this hard, if it's that if we don't work, we shouldn't eat. When you're just talking about providing for yourself, how much more is that true when we talk about the work of the gospel that'll last forever? It has an eternal impact and bears eternal fruit. How much more is it important? Only the Holy Spirit can accomplish that in us. But I believe he wants to. I believe we're responsible for asking him to, for humbling ourselves unto that. So God creates the garden. He creates man. He creates a job for man. And then he gives Adam a law. Starting in verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Sounds ominous, doesn't it? It is. And it, and it elicits a lot of questions in us. Why? Why would God do that? Why? He knows. He knows us. He made us. I was dirt 10 minutes ago, and now he's putting something in front of me that I want real bad and can't have? Why would God do that to us? Listen, God did not harm them. God did not tempt them. It's clear from Scripture. God cannot be tempted, neither does he tempt. So this tree was not a temptation to them. Here's what this tree presented. An opportunity for righteousness. This tree represented an opportunity for righteousness. But every opportunity for righteousness also has a converse opportunity to it. An opportunity for wickedness. The opportunity for righteousness here is to obey God. God puts something there. I don't know anything about it, but he said, don't eat of it. I can eat of anything in this garden, but don't eat of it. Righteousness says obey God. And I'm not losing anything by obeying God. If I truly know and trust and believe God, am I losing anything? Am I ever in danger of missing out if I obey God? No. No, you're only in danger of being hurt when you disobey God. So this tree represents an opportunity for righteousness. But righteousness here, knowledge of righteousness, knowledge of good and evil was going to be gained one of two ways, either through their obedience or through their disobedience. They were going to know that God is holy and just either because they took him at his word or because they learned the hard way. God did not tempt them to learn the hard way. They chose it on their own, we know from Genesis 3. But here all we have if you're just reading this chronologically and you don't have knowledge of Genesis 3, are you looking at that going, why would he do that to them? No, the only reason we ask that question is because we so wish they hadn't failed. We so wish they hadn't failed. But you know, if they didn't, know who would have? Cain. And then Lamech. And then me. I would have done it. I'd have been that dude. Because it's so hard for us to learn righteously. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Fear of the Lord would have said, hey, he said don't eat it. I'm not eating it. I don't know why. I don't need to know why. Stop asking me, Eve. <laughs> I don't know about the tree. Wisdom, fear of the Lord would have led them to righteous obedience, and they would have grown in their understanding of God's righteousness through their obedience. Or they would learn of God's justice through their slavery to sin. 
their slavery to sin. They didn't understand how dire this was. Romans 6, 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, which at this point, they are slaves of God, slaves of righteousness. They don't know any better. They don't do any different. They live unto the Lord to glorify him through their obedience, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. They became slaves of sin through their disobedience. Through their disobedience, they learned the knowledge of good and evil the hard way. That sets something in course for us. We know that Genesis 3 ends up happening. We, we understand the fall of mankind. But God is gracious. And what we see here in this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this opportunity for righteousness, realizing that thousands of years later, stick with me, thousands of years later, there was another tree. Another tree with a savior hanging bloody on it. Another opportunity for righteousness, for obedience. Not obedience to sin, to be slaves to it, but obedience that leads to righteousness, to obey Christ, to believe him, to trust him, to, to follow him, and to have knowledge of good and evil learned the right way through faith. Everything that's happening here in Genesis is allegorical, but it's not only that. It is symbolic, but it's not only that. It's real history. These, th these people existed. God said these things. These things all happened, but all of them are pointing to a greater truth. They're pointing to a fulfillment. So when you see people in a paradise created by God and given work to do, and a tree that represents an opportunity for righteousness when it's in obedience to God, what you're really seeing is a foreshadowing of a kingdom created by Christ. We're in a place of peace, of enjoyment, of hard work that honors and glorifies God as we look to Christ our Savior and we trust only Him and follow Him and obey His voice. Whatever He says, we believe and we trust him for, and we enjoy to ultimate satisfaction, only that will be better. It'll be better then. Everything we're seeing here is symbolic, but it falls short of the ultimate reality that we find in Christ. He's always the better manifestation. He's the better paradise. He's the better tree, the tree of life. So ultimately, what are we learning here from Genesis chapter 2? First of all, we're learning that God wants to be known by us. He is eternally existent, independent, all-powerful, good and gracious, creative and kind. He doesn't need us, but he wants us. And he made us for certain purposes. And those purposes will always mean that we're applying ourselves with hard work to glorify him. That there are consequences of our disobedience, but that God's grace overcomes our disobedience. That there is life and knowledge and goodness and fulfillment found only in him, not in our vain pursuits. Not in our attempts to find good and evil, wisdom, fulfillment, and other things. It went bad the first time, goes bad every time. 
Praise God that he is gracious. I love him so much. He's such a good father. This marks the beginning of a season marked by God's patience with humanity. As we begin to see next week, man and woman and their relationship and, and then how badly that ends up going, we will begin to see over and over and over again how enduringly patient our God is. Keeping that in mind keeps us from asking questions like, how could you do this to me? How could you let this happen? He's bearing with us. We are not bearing with him. Praise God for his goodness to us. He's Yahweh. He is. He'll always be. I love him so much. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.